Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Last November, we did an episode on Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin, who a lot of people had asked for an episode on. She was the astronomer whose discovery that the stars are made primarily of hydrogen and helium really fundamentally shifted our understanding of the universe and what's in it. And one of the names that kept coming up when working on that episode was Annie Jump Cannon, whose time at the Harvard Observatory uh, overlapped with Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin's. I really wanted to do an episode on her, but I also didn't want to have, like, two astronomers working at the exact same facility partly at the same time, like, right in a row. So Annie Jump Cannon has been described as doing for stars what Carl Linnaeus did for organisms. The massive star catalog that she compiled became an incredible resource in the field of astronomy. The numbers that are used in that are still used to identify a lot of stars today. So consequently, Annie Jump Cannon became known both as the most famous woman astronomer of her day and also as the census taker of the sky. Uh, I put her on the list for a future episode back when I worked on the one on Cecilia Payne-Kaposchkin, but I, <laughs> I kept putting it off just a little more to have a little space between two topics that have a lot of overlap. So Annie Jump Cannon was born on December 11th, 1863 in Dover, Delaware. Her father, Wilson Lee Cannon, had apprenticed as a ship's carpenter before building up his own lumber and shipbuilding businesses and also buying a prosperous farm. He also served as a state senator, and according to his obituary in the Wilmington, Delaware Morning News, he changed parties from Democrat to Republican after refusing to vote in support of Delaware seceding from the Union in 1861. Before marrying Annie's mother, Wilson had four children with his first wife, Anne Scotton, who died in 1859. He married Mary Elizabeth Jump in 1862, and Annie was their first child together. Annie also had two younger brothers, Wilson Jr. and Barrett. Annie's mother was interested in the night sky, and she passed that interest on to her daughter. They made a simple observatory in the attic where Mary taught Annie to identify the constellations, reading an astronomical guidebook by candlelight. This apparently caused Annie's father some distress. Later in her life, she said, quote, Father was more interested in the safety of the house than in the movement of the stars. It was always with a sigh of relief he breathed when my evening vigil was over, and the house was unburned. The family also had a candelabra that was decorated with dangling glass prisms that made rainbows on the walls, which Annie just loved to look at. When she grew up, Annie kept this candelabra in her own home, and at one point she wrote, quote, stars and prisms. How prophetic was this baby amusement to the profession that was destined to fill my life? In 1880, Annie graduated from a Methodist preparatory school called Wilmington Conference Academy. That is now Wesley College and became part of Delaware State University on July 1st, 2021. After graduating, she went on to college at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. It was still fairly unusual at this point for a woman to go to college. The movement for higher education for women in the U.S. was really just evolving. Wellesley had itself been chartered in 1870, and it opened just five years before Annie enrolled. 
One of her professors there was physicist and astronomer Sarah Frances Whiting. Whiting had graduated from Ingham University, which was the first chartered university for women in the United States. She had graduated in 1865. And in addition to teaching, she dedicated herself to opening doors for women in the sciences. To that end, she established a physics laboratory at Wellesley, which was the first such lab at a woman's college in the United States. After Annie Jump Cannon's time at Wellesley, Whiting also convinced a trustee to buy a telescope and established an observatory at the college. At the start of September of 1882, while Cannon was studying at Wellesley, people started noticing a bright object in the sky. It was a comet, and it came to be known as the Great Comet of 1882. This was one of the brightest comets ever recorded, visible at night for months and even visible during the day when it was at its brightest. Professor Whiting got Cannon and her other students up in the early morning hours, day after day, to observe the comet and record its progress. After graduating from Wellesley in 1884, Cannon returned home to Dover, and over the next 10 years, she helped keep the family home, tutored students, played the organ at the Methodist church that she and her family attended, and traveled. And at some point, she also became ill. Most sources point to scarlet fever— It's not exactly clear when this happened, though. In some accounts, she's described as still being at Wellesley, and in others, this was later. Accounts also contradict on how this illness affected her. Some describe her as losing virtually all of her hearing, and others describe her as using a hearing aid to enjoy concerts, lectures, and theater as practical hearing aids became available in the early 20th century. There may be some clarity about all this and her feelings about it in Cannon's journals and personal papers that are archived at Harvard, but at this point, there's no book-length biography of her that has really explored all of that. Yeah, there's also some nuance in how people describe themselves in terms of deafness, depending on, like, the level of hearing that they do or don't have. Right. Some of that evolved after she was living, and there's just... Uh, some incongruity in how different accounts describe her and how this affected her. Uh, One thing we do know for sure, though, is that Annie Jump Cannon loved to travel. In 1892, she took a tour of Europe with her friend Sarah Potter, who had been one of her classmates at Wellesley. There are a lot of sources, like a lot, a lot, that claim (laughs) that this trip was to see and photograph a solar eclipse. And while there was a total solar eclipse in April of 1892, it was not visible from Europe at all. It was visible from the South Pacific. The source for this discrepancy seems to be an obituary that conflated this trip with several other trips around the U.S. that Cannon did take to observe eclipses later on. Although Cannon did not see an eclipse during this trip, she did take a lot of pictures with her camera. That was a Blair Cameret, which was a leather-covered wooden box camera that used roll film. Cameras like this were pretty new at the time. George Eastman had just patented his roll film camera in 1888, and the Cameret, which first hit the market about three years later, was later found to infringe on some of the Kodak company's patents. Cannon's trip to Europe overlapped the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's departure on his first voyage to the Americas on August 3rd of 1492. 
And by coincidence, Cannon was in Genoa, Italy, where Columbus had been born on that anniversary. Said he was having a big party in recognition. And after she returned to the United States, the World's Columbian Exhibition started in Chicago in 1893, with that World's Fair also commemorating the 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage. Cannon wrote a book called In the Footsteps of Columbus, which used words and pictures to not only document her trip, but also to describe how she used this camera and how it performed there. The Blair Camera Company used this booklet as a souvenir during the World's Columbian Exposition. Cannon kicked it off with a poem dedicating the book to her cameraette, quote, in the hope that it may be of service in proclaiming her good qualities throughout the length and breadth of Columbia. The book also ended with the Blair Camera Company's address so that interested readers could write for more information about the cameraette and the company's other camera models. It's also pretty celebratory of Columbus and of the Catholic conquest of Muslim Spain. For example, Cannon describes Columbus's appearance before Queen Isabella as happening after, quote, the successful termination of this brilliant war. Uh, a little cringy. A little cringy, yeah. Uh, there, there are various cringy bits in this book, uh, but it kind of cracks me up that before she became one of the most famous astronomers living at the time, she basically wrote an ad for this camera company in the form of a booklet, uh, which you can still read online today. Not long after Annie Jump Cannon returned to the United States from this trip, her mother died at the age of 54, and Annie was absolutely bereft. She described herself as feeling completely lost and just looking for some kind of purpose to her life. This seems to be what prompted her to go back to school. She returned to Wellesley in 1894, and she studied x-rays with Sarah Frances Whiting and also worked as a teaching assistant in physics. In 1895, Cannon entered Radcliffe College, which had been chartered the year before as Harvard's Coordinate College for Women. She started out as a special student in astronomy. And this is actually a good point to take a quick sponsor break. Before we talk about Annie Jump Cannon's time at Harvard, we need to back up a little bit and talk about what she was doing and who else was working there. Physicist and astronomer Edward Charles Pickering became director of Harvard College Observatory in 1876. In 1879, he hired a woman named Wilhelmina Fleming, known as Mina, to work as a maid in his home. She had emigrated to the United States with her husband, and she needed to find work because he had abandoned her while she was pregnant. Pickering and his wife quickly realized that Fleming was very bright. She had worked as a schoolteacher in Scotland before getting married. So he made her a part-time copyist and computer at the observatory, a role that she filled until returning to Scotland to give birth to her son. She returned to Cambridge and a full-time role at the observatory in 1881, leaving her son with her mother and grandmother until he was about seven. There's a very widely circulated story that Pickering got so fed up with the men at the observatory doing a bad job at their work that he said something like, even my maid could do this better than you, and then just sort of spontaneously hired Fleming to do this. And it seems a little more nuanced than that. 
<laughs> right. I I um I have this moment of appreciation for like, thank goodness someone recognized that this woman was very smart and they could actually use her in another role. Yeah. Doesn't always happen. No. Uh and at this point, I mean there's other other stuff relating to gender and sexism here for sure that we're gonna get into. Uh, At this point, Pickering's budget at the observatory was extremely thin. And one of the things that he was trying to do was to identify the light cycles of about 200 variable stars. And this was a really time-consuming prospect. It wasn't particularly difficult work, but it did mean that somebody had to regularly observe and record the star's apparent brightness over time. It's like a long-term project for each star. Since Pickering didn't have the budget to pay a staff to do this, he called on amateur astronomers to volunteer their time. And he focused on women volunteers, especially on women who had graduated from the newly established women's colleges in the United States. He thought women were particularly suited for this work, especially since it could be done from home. And he also thought that developing a group of women astronomical observers would help dispel stereotypes and criticisms of women's higher education. At the same time, astronomers at the Harvard Observatory were also studying and analyzing stellar spectra. Physician and amateur astronomer Henry Draper had been the first person to photograph a star's spectrum in 1872. These were recorded onto glass plates as a series of black and gray lines, almost like a barcode. Each element produces its own unique spectrum when it's heated up, and these stellar spectra corresponded with the spectra of different elements. But when Draper started making these photographs, people didn't yet understand why that was. And they interpreted these stellar spectra as representing which elements were contained in each particular star. Draper died suddenly in 1882 at the age of 45, and his wife, Anna Palmer Draper, decided to continue his work in his memory. This included donating his collection of glass plates to Harvard, as well as providing funding for the work. Unlike the observation of variable stars, which volunteers could do from home, analyzing these plates had to be done at the observatory. They were far too delicate and hard to replace to be removed. Pickering was so afraid of the plate collection being destroyed in a fire that he had a specially built, purportedly fireproof building, just known as the Brick Building, built to house this work. Pickering again focused on hiring women to work with these glass plates, By 1886, he had a staff of 14 women who all worked under the supervision of Williamina Fleming. Sometimes these were known by the pretty disparaging nickname of Pickering's Harem. And in general, there was a division of labor at the observatory that was based on gender. It wasn't considered appropriate for women to work during the night. I will say it was specifically not considered appropriate for, like, college-educated and middle- and upper-class white women to work during the night. There were plenty of women, generally, that were working during the night. Uh, There were concerns that they were too delicate for the cold and the late hours involved, and also concerns about the delicacy of the equipment as well. So for the most part, men were making observations through telescopes, recording data, and taking pictures of the stars using the observatory's equipment, and then women were cataloging these findings and analyzing the data. 
at a pay rate of 25 cents an hour, which was about half of what the men were making. When Annie Jump Cannon's booklet on her trip to Spain and her camera at camera was being used as a souvenir at the World's Columbian Exposition, Mina Fleming was there, giving an address on women's work in astronomy. She said in part, quote, Photography, as applied to astronomy, is one of the greatest advances which has been made in this, the oldest of sciences. And this same advance has opened up a comparatively extensive field for women's work in this department. And then she ended this address by saying, quote, while we cannot maintain that in everything woman is man's equal, yet in many things her patience, perseverance, and method make her his superior. Therefore, let us hope that in astronomy, which now affords a large field for woman's work and skill, she may, as has been the case in several other sciences, at least prove herself his equal. So this idea that there was women's work to be done in astronomy That was well-established by the time Annie Jump Cannon started her study of the subject at Ratcliffe. Essentially, especially in the late 19th century, women came to these roles with a range of education and experience, everything from an interest in astronomy and a knack for math to an advanced degree in the subject. This was typically very detailed, also very repetitive work involving making calculations and analyzing data and keeping and organizing records. Women were thought to be particularly suited for this, thanks to the perceived traits that Fleming described in her address. But for most women, there also was not a lot of opportunity to advance in these jobs, at least not beyond supervising other women in similar roles. It was almost taken for granted that women who were hired to work in astronomy would stay at their jobs until they got married or until they retired, whichever one came first. Annie Jump Cannon started working at the Harvard Observatory as an unpaid assistant in 1896. This assistantship typically went to an exceptional astronomy student at Radcliffe. The year before, it had gone to Henrietta Swan Leavitt, whose discovery of the relationship between the luminosity and period of stars called Cepheid variables allowed other astronomers to estimate stellar distances. Like Cannon, Leavitt had lost much of her hearing after an illness not long after she finished her bachelor's degree. Annie Jump Cannon worked at the Harvard Observatory for the next 45 years. During that time, she discovered at least 300 variable stars and five novae. The work she's best known for is developing the stellar classification scheme that is still in use today, and then using that scheme to classify more than 300,000 stars. Cannon's star classification system built on the work of earlier astronomers. The first system for classifying stars based on their spectra was developed by Father Pietro Angelo Secchi at the Vatican Observatory. He sorted the stars into four classes. Class 1 included white and blue stars, whose spectra had evidence of hydrogen. Yellow stars were in Class 2, and their spectra showed iron, calcium, and other elements. Red stars were in Classes 3 and 4, depending on exactly what was shown in their spectra. While working with Draper's glass plates and the newly created plates from the nighttime work at the Harvard Observatory, Williamina Fleming expanded this classification system using letters rather than Roman numerals. Her Draper College of Stellar Spectra was published in the Annals of the Harvard Observatory in 1890, and it sorted about 10,000 stars into 15 different classes. 
Her system ultimately grew to include the classes designated by the letters A through Q, and it was based on the strength of the star's hydrogen lines. So A-type stars had the most hydrogen, B, the second most hydrogen, and so on. Meanwhile, Antonia Maury, niece of Henry Draper, also joined the observatory in 1888, and she created a system as well, using Roman numerals 1 through 22, with three subdivisions. This was clunky, and Fleming's and Maury's systems were just two of many classification systems that were in use in the world's observatories. Fleming was named Curator of Astronomical Photographs at Harvard at the end of 1899, And not long after that, Cannon started streamlining and simplifying the two stellar classification systems that were being used at the observatory. She kept some of Fleming's alphabetical categories, combining or eliminating others, while incorporating some of Maury's ordering. Cannon placed class O, which showed strong helium lines at the top of the list, And from there, she ordered the stars by their color, from blue through white and yellow to orange and red, which also corresponded to their temperature from hottest to coldest. This became the basic version of the scheme that is still used today, with the stars being in type O, B, A, F, G, K, M, uh, plus P for planetary nebulas, and Q for unusual stars. That's the mnemonic that's often said is, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Cannon became extraordinarily skilled at classifying stars. Looking at the lines on glass plates through a loop, she could classify about three stars a minute, which was about as long as it took assistance to prepare the plate and write down her notes. As she described it, quote, it was almost as if the distant stars had really acquired speech and were able to tell of their constitution and physical condition. Cannon's description of other astronomical phenomena were similarly lyrical. Around the same time she was working out this classification system, she went to Virginia Beach to observe the May 28, 1900 total solar eclipse. In her words, quote, under the falls of Niagara on the top of Vesuvius had before seemed to me to be the times of my life when I was nearest to the forces of nature. But those experiences were nothing to this. One more thought came suddenly just before totality, that the human mind had, after all, learned to predict this phenomenon. In 1903, Cannon published a catalog of more than 1,200 variable stars, with a second volume following four years later. And in 1910, the International Union for Cooperation in Solar Research adopted Cannon's classification system, known then as the Harvard system as its standard. The International Astronomical Union did the same in 1922. Cannon's role at the observatory changed in 1911, so we will get to that after a quick sponsor break. Williamina Fleming died on May 21st, 1911, at the age of 54. And Annie Jump Cannon was the obvious choice to succeed her as the curator of astronomical photographs at Harvard College Observatory. But this proved to be controversial. Even though Fleming had served in that role for more than a decade, Harvard President Abbott Lawrence Lowell called her hiring under his predecessor Charles Eliot, quote, anomalous. Lowell did not expect this anomaly to be repeated. 
He was not expecting another woman to be hired to replace her. So Pickering placed Cannon in this position anyway, although this wasn't a formal appointment through the university. So that meant her pay was lower than it would have been otherwise, and her name was not listed in the Harvard directory. As curator of astronomical photographs, Cannon took over work on the Henry Draper catalog of stellar spectra, building on the earlier work of Mina Fleming and Antonia Mari. From 1918 to 1924, the Harvard College Observatory published this directory in 10 volumes, under the names of both Annie J. Cannon and Edward C. Pickering. Over those 10 volumes, the catalog described more than 225,000 stars, including their spectra, their positions, and their magnitudes. Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin would call this Cannon's greatest legacy to science. Cannon also maintained a card index that swelled to more than 750,000 stars and a collection of verse about astronomy written by such poets as Milton, Longfellow, and Emerson. Some of the plates in the Harvard Observatory collection had been taken at Harvard's astronomical station in Arequipa, Peru. Harvard operated this observatory as a pretty insular research station from 1889 to 1927, at which point they packed it all up and relocated the whole facility and all its equipment to South Africa. Cannon spent some time at Arequipa in 1922 when she was 58, observing and photographing the stars herself at night and walking and exploring the area during the day. In a letter back to Harlow Shapley, who had replaced Edward Pickering after his death in 1919, she wrote, quote, I expect to be an athlete when I return to Old Cambridge, for the running of the 13-inch requires turning a heavy dome, mounting ladders big and little, all sorts of things, which Mr. Muniz declared I could not do, for it was not woman's work. I can do it all, however, except get good plates of faint spectra. This was just one of many trips that Cannon took while working at Harvard. In 1913, she had taken some time off from the observatory to go to Europe with her sister. In 1923, she went to Catalina Island, California, to view a solar eclipse with astronomers from Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. But unfortunately, the weather did not cooperate for that one. It was not a wasted trip, though, since Cannon also toured West Coast observatories and exchanged information with other astronomers while she was out there. She took another trip to Poughkeepsie, New York, to observe a solar eclipse in January of 1925. She also attended every meeting of the International Astronomical Union that was held during her career, with the exception of the one in 1922. She had been invited to it well in advance, but since it was being held in Rome, and she was at the time working in Peru, it was just not feasible. She corresponded frequently with other attendees, though, and discussions and potential revisions of her classification system were on the agenda for that year's meeting. Cannon was also being honored for her work as an astronomer. Her first honorary doctorate came from the University of Delaware in 1918. Another followed from Groningen University in 1921. In 1923, the League of Women Voters named her one of the 12 greatest American women. And in 1925, she was elected to the American Philosophical Society. Also in 1925, she became the first woman to be awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Oxford. She was awarded an honorary doctorate from Wellesley on May 29th of that year as well, 
She had to delay a trip to England to attend the IAU meeting being held in Cambridge so that she could accept it in person. She was awarded honorary degrees from Oglethorpe and Mount Holyoke in the 1930s as well. In some cases, though, the honors that Cannon was awarded were conditional or they didn't happen at all. She was made an honorary member of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1914 because women were not admitted as full members. And in 1923, the National Academy of Sciences started discussing inducting more women into that academy, but Cannon was passed over because Raymond Pearl of Johns Hopkins objected to her deafness. There has also been some discussion of whether Annie Jump Cannon or Henrietta Swan Levitt should have been considered to take Edward Pickering's place after his death. And while it's true that neither was considered because of their sex, and if their sex was not an issue, may not have been because of their hearing loss, it also does not appear that it was a role that either of them considered for themselves. In 1923, Cecilia Payne, who would later be Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, joined the Harvard College Observatory. And as we discussed in our episode on her, she built on the cataloging and classification work that Annie Jump Cannon and other women at the university had done to conclude that all the stars have about the same elements in about the same proportions, and that the different elements that show up in their spectral lines come from the star's temperature, not their actual composition. In 1924, Cannon moved into a home across from the observatory, which she nicknamed Star Cottage, which is possibly the most charming thing ever. Her widowed half-sister, Ella Cannon Marshall, had been living with Cannon before this point and shared the home at Star Cottage as well. Cannon hosted frequent visitors, including children from the area who she loved to entertain with parties. She also kept doing all of the other things she loved, including going to lectures and concerts and traveling. And she kept finding new stars to classify, focusing on fainter and fainter stars as technology made it possible to capture their spectra accurately. In 1931, Cannon was awarded the Draper Gold Medal for discoveries in astronomical physics from the National Academy of Sciences. She was the first woman to be so awarded. In 1932, she was one of two final recipients of the $1,000 Ellen Richards Research Prize that was awarded by the Association to Aid Scientific Research by Women. Having... Granted this award for this last time, the association then disbanded, quote, since women are given opportunities in scientific research on equality with men and gain recognition for their achievements. Okay. (laughs) With the benefit of hindsight, this is an extremely optimistic statement. That's the kindest possible way to put it. Uh, Cannon decided to use her prize money to endow the Annie J. Cannon Prize to be awarded through the American Astronomical Society in recognition of women astronomers. Its first recipient was Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin. That was in 1934, and it is still awarded today in recognition of female astronomers from North America in recognition for work done within five years of earning their Ph.D., Among the many other pieces of this story that uh, strike me in various ways, the fact that in 1932, it was possible to endow an ongoing award with (laughs) $1,000. 
Uh, Like, she knew it was going to take some time for it to build up enough interest to be able to sustain itself, but she was also really hoping she would actually get to see someone be awarded it during her lifetime. Uh, And that did happen. But uh, at first, it it was not given out all that regularly, and the prize was very small uh, as it was trying to sustain itself. Uh, in 1938, Cannon was named the William Cranch Bond Astronomer and Curator of Astronomical Photographs at Harvard. And at that same time, Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin was also named Phillips Astronomer. Although this didn't really affect Cannon's role at the observatory and it wasn't a teaching role, it did mean she was finally officially a Harvard professor. It was also apparently still pretty anomalous for a woman to be offered such a position because the certificate that she got was addressed, Dear Sir. (laughs) Annie Jump Cannon retired from the Harvard Observatory two years later in 1940, but she kept working until shortly before her death on April 13, 1941, at the age of 77. Obituaries written by other astronomers describe her as deeply beloved by her friends and colleagues, as well as being truly dedicated to her work and just masterful at it. Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin wrote, quote, It is nearly impossible for us to imagine the astronomical world without her. Of late years, she has been not only a vital living person, she has been an institution. Already in our school days, she was a legend. The scientific world has lost something besides a great scientist. In 1949, a new volume of the Henry Draper catalog was published, and this was the Annie J. Cannon Memorial Volume, and it brought the total number of stars detailed in the catalog to 359,083. World War II was underway by the time Annie Jump Cannon died, and toward the end of her life, she was quoted as saying, quote, In these days of great trouble and unrest, it is good to have something outside our own planet, something comforting to troubled minds. Let people look to the stars for comfort and find solace as others have. Hers is, is a, one of those simultaneously uplifting and amazing and very frustrating stories. Yes, that's all true. Uh, I have a bit of listener mail to take us out. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk some more about our feelings about Annie Jump Cannon and our behind <laughs> the scenes on Friday. This is from Joanna. Joanna writes, Greetings from London. I'm a few weeks behind on the podcast, and today I listened to the episode on Daphne du Maurier. I was so surprised to see the episode on her as I only recently learned her name after visiting the town she used to live in in Cornwall called Foy. My husband and I are Canadians living in the UK for a temporary post, and we went to Foy because my husband's grandfather had a summer cottage there. As we were walking around to find the ferry to take us across the estuary, I came across a large bird sculpture. Bird watching is one of my hobbies, so naturally I was attracted to this sculpture and I was surprised when I read the plaque. Uh, <laughs> the plaque says, Thrustle's Rook with a Book. Rook with a Book celebrates author Daphne du Maurier's legacy, inspiration, and love of Foy where she lived. Uh, and then it goes on to talk a bit more about Daphne du Maurier. The email continues, while I enjoyed the movie The Birds, my brother is the Hitchcock fan and I wasn't sure if he knew about it being based on du Maurier's work and this seemingly random place in the world suddenly became known 
uh, to in the last few months because of my husband's connection to and fond memories of the town. And now this connection to one of my brother's favorite directors. I've attached a photo of the sculpture as well as a few other photos of the area to give you an idea as to why she might have loved it so much. I sure did. As an aside, I happened to visit the place where The Birds was filmed at my brother's recommendation when I was in the area on a work trip once. The area does actually look similar to Foey, although perhaps a bit more flatland. There apparently was a bookstore that used to always keep all her works in stock, but unfortunately the couple that ran it retired, so the store is closed, and I don't know if the new owners are keeping up that practice. I didn't get a chance to go to the bookstore to find out, but now that I've heard the episode, some of her novels really intrigue me, and I'll look for some of the titles to read. I always enjoy hearing letters from others when they have these interesting connections, and I thought I would share mine with you as well as some photos, just in case you'd be interested to see where she lived for so long, at least the area. Many of the homes on the hills are not open to the public as the staircases to reach them are locked, so I imagine we couldn't really have seen her home anyway. Thanks for your show. I always enjoy it and recommend it to my high school students. Joanna, thank you so much for this email and these pictures. Joanna, I don't think we ever actually mentioned the name of the town of Foley, but like that was sort of the central place. Uh, Menabilly was a couple miles off from there. Uh, one of the homes that that they lived in was like sort of right across the river from the town proper. So that was sort of a focal point of her upbringing. And these pictures, uh, especially the bird statue, I can totally see how that bird statue would immediately uh, grab somebody's attention because it is a statue of a bird um, with one sort of talon on a book, um, (laughs) which, you know, from very far away, if you were not sure where you were, you might think that it was some kind of an Edgar Allan Poe statue, but it is not. So... Thank you again for the email and the pictures. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com, and we are all over social media at Missed in History. So that's where you'll find our Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else that you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 